I'm having some cheese doodles. Yeah, we can hear that. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hello again. Hi. Hi, everybody. How are you? <laughs> and the listeners should know we all just talked a very short period of time ago, but it's great to see you both again. You look, you look great, even after a couple of hours. I love how you resist the production and the artifice of this media creation. You know what I mean? I, no I, I'm, just, just I'm just dripping in authenticity. I like. No one needs to it. know that we record several of these a day. Okay, I'm gonna cut this whole part out. All right, <laughs> you're you're on notice, Jason. Jesus, he's exhibiting terrible behavior in front of our guest, Marcy. <laughs> Hi, Marcy. Hi, Marcy. Thanks for is having me. It's good back. to be back. Always. This is your first experience with Jason on the podcast because we had to fire him. He's back now, but back on probation, as you just saw. <laughs> um, Marcy, so glad that you can come and join us in this in these trying times. Um, yes. These com- like a commercial. I was going to say, do you know what? Yeah. Have you seen that meme where it's like commercials in January? Buy a Toyota. Commercials now in these trying times. <laughs> so buy true. a Toyota. There is a car company that has a commercial that makes me cry, though. I don't know really? which car it is, but it, yeah. there's like is a sun an, that's setting. Do they make ambulances? That <laughs> no. <laughs> that would make that me would cry. <laughs> oh, Marcy, when last we spoke to you, you were working at Planned Parenthood. You're doing all sorts of exciting stuff with incarcerated populations, but you moved on. You're doing something new, and we want to talk to you about it. What are you up to? Yes, I moved on last September, September 2019. I joined the Brooklyn Community Foundation as their vice president of programs and partnerships. So I am tasked with helping to develop the strategic vision for our grant making, our capacity building services, and advocacy. Cool. Advocacy for who and what conditions? What do you advocate for? Well, um, our advocacy work is new, so it's still developing, but we work on behalf of community-based organizations and nonprofits in Brooklyn uh, because we are Brooklyn's community foundation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do our work with a racial equity lens, um, and I can explain what that means. And we really look to build relationships with community organizations that are grassroots, that are newly developing, that are led by people of color, that are kind of crafting their work in a way that shares power with people who are most affected by the issues that they're working on. So when we look at what advocacy looks like for a community foundation, we're really looking to see what issues are prioritized by our community partners and how can we use our positionality to amplify that and like leverage our relationships to to push those those ideas and those positions forward. Can I ask a question about that? Yeah. I've never worked for a foundation, but I've done, you know, a lot of fundraising and have been fortunate to get investment from foundations, have to report back to them. And I find there's, in spite of what you just said, or maybe it's not in spite of, but there's always a tension. There are kind of like three levels. There are the the grassroots leaders that you mentioned and what they're trying to accomplish. 
there are folks on staff like yourself and what you're trying to accomplish. And then there are the folks who invest in the foundation, right? That, that the money, where the, a lot of the money starts. And sometimes in my experience, there's tension because there's not always complete alignment. In, mm. Can you just talk about that and like what, sure. what that looks like on a daily basis? Yeah. You know, I would say that Brooklyn Community Foundation is really good at clearly communicating our values to all audiences. So it's not just that we have one line for how we talk about ourselves to community-based organizations and another line for how we talk about ourselves to our philanthropic colleagues and partners. And then another way we present ourselves to donors. We are really good at being consistent and showing up authentically uh, and being okay with standing in our values and being okay walking away when there might not be alignment. I have only been there sub- since September, and there's definitely been times where we've been in donor meetings, and it is clear that the way we center racial equity and the way we honor community uh, leadership and power is not shared by a potential donor, and we walk away. You know, I think that is something that's difficult for a community foundation to do because we yeah. distribute money, but we also fundraise. You know, our interest is making sure that Brooklyn's nonprofits have the support they need. And some of that comes from our endowment. Some of that comes from individual donors. Some of that comes from other foundations or big donors. But we also don't want to bend to a degree where we're now making sacrifices. Um, and that trickles down to our community partners. And we're just not willing to make those kinds of compromises. What's the portfolio in terms of like how many, how much money do you distribute? In 2019, we distributed a little over 7 million and we have oh. donor advised funds. Mm. Um, so our donor advised funds were around 3 million. And then the strategic grant making, which is my shop was about four. And how many, how many um, nonprofits are you benefiting? I want to say last year that went to, I don't know, between 150 and 200 different organizations. My God. Yeah. It's a lot. It's substantial. I have to imagine doing your work in Brooklyn, which is a place that has seen such amazing change. When I say amazing, I'm not saying good or bad, just like a lot of change over time. I'm curious, and you don't need to get terribly specific. What do the demographics look like in terms of the source of the funding? Like how much of the funding is... You know, I mean, there are big Italian-American um, communities in Brooklyn, African-American, Jewish-American. I'm just curious, like, what does that look like in terms of the donor base? The there, There's this kind of ongoing dialogue around donor diversity. And I think that's interesting, personally, because mm-hmm. it's not as if there's equal distribution of wealth. Um, I'm all for, sure. you know, making sure that people who who want to um, be donors and who want to kind of participate in philanthropy in the way that we do as a foundation, have access to the support and the services we provide. Um, So in that way, I think donor diversity is important. Um, But for me, it was really clear coming onto the team to understand, are we diversifying for the sake of saying, look at all of our rainbow kind of coalition of donors, or is there something, some value add that we are providing to to new donors, smaller donors, donors who have never worked with a community foundation before. 
to my delight, there definitely is a service that is provided when you are giving through a foundation versus giving on your own. Uh, there's been a large focus. Uh, I think August is like Black Philanthropy Month. Um, so there's a large focus on engaging donors who are African-American and other Black people. Philanthropy is not new to us. Like That is just part of our culture, this idea of living and giving and taking care of one another in a way that's very communal. Like that is philanthropy, giving of yourself, giving of not just your time, but your resources to take care of other people. So that's something that we see a lot. We just don't call it philanthropy. We call it, that's just how we live. We call it community, (laughs) right? We call Mm -hmm. it showing up in community with one another. Working with people and their wealth is a different approach. And I think our foundation is trying to figure out how to best support Black and other donors of color. I don't have the stats on how many of our donors are people of color or Black people specifically, but it's it's something we've been we've been working through and being in communication with Black donors about like what are their needs, what do they need uh, in terms of like developing their philanthropic practice in different ways, and how can we support them as a foundation? That's a really interesting response because I um, was recently talking to like a foundation relations person at a university. And um, she was talking about the complexity of kind of introducing diversity of donors in certain environments because just the um, just the metrics that they use to assess whether someone has the ability to give has been faulty. She's like, mm-hmm. I recognize that there are some people who live in certain zip codes, but I know that they have more resources than the zip code would allow you to believe. They're just in that zip code because they own that house or whatever, <laughs> but they have more resources. And she says, you know, if you begin to have a conversation with, you know, for her, it was alumni. And she's like, I was having this conversation that was very long. And I didn't think, you know, I just wanted to have that conversation because I thought the alumni should be around. And it it turned out that this alumni had access to lots of resources, Mm. (laughs) but she just didn't fit the profile. And so that's also part of it is that there are these kind of ready metrics that you use that are really only suited for the white giver um, or donor. Um, And so you have to kind of ask different questions. (laughs) Right. Also looking at wealth and understanding that people's resources change, right? It changes and hopefully it grows over time. So something that the foundation did recently, I think within the last couple of years, was adjust the entry point for donor advised funds. Mm -hmm. And I think right now, I I believe it's $5,000 to open a donor advised funds fund, which is very accessible for people, for people who want to give year over year. And want that service of having your your fund managed by a professional foundation. The other thing we look at in terms of, we don't call them donors, but I'm going to include it in the same pool because we're talking about people who want to engage in philanthropy, doing donor board service matching and training. People who want to provide uh, their time and talent to nonprofits through board service training them on what that means and how to identify the best match for um, for your volunteer work as a board member and also working with nonprofits around how do you cultivate your board? How do you identify what you need on a board? How do you cultivate board members? And um, how do you get the most out of your board? Well, what's noteworthy then, I mean, given the amount that you distribute and the number of nonprofits that are benefiting, it means that you must give a full range um, all the way down to sort of small amounts, it sounds like mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. yeah. How did um, how did your giving or the foundation's giving shifted with COVID? Like what, you you all must have been like, okay, how do we? Yeah, 
it's totally shifted. Uh, on March 13th, we launched the Brooklyn COVID-19 Response Fund. Our work is all COVID all the time. That is our sole focus right now. Um, we have other portfolios, like we have an Invest in Youth portfolio that looks at youth justice and youth leadership, um, youth organizing. We have a Brooklyn Elders Fund that looks at the care and leadership and needs of older adults in Brooklyn. We have an Immigrant Rights Fund that looks at the needs of um, and the justice and organizing work around immigrant communities in Brooklyn. Those still exist, but what we've done is we're not doing any new cycles of funding for our multi-year grants in those portfolios. If we have organizations that were cycling off as their last year, we're just giving them an extension because we know that nonprofits are becoming like dangerously destabilized during this time. And we yeah. want to make sure that we're investing in these organizations that we have had relationships with, we believe in their work, and we want to stand by them through this time. So those portfolios are staying stable. We actually provided through our fund what we're calling a sustainability enhancement grant. Essentially, what we did is we looked at all of our grantees. Uh, we used what we call an equity filter to try to assess which organizations, based on certain indicators, might have more barriers to accessing fundraising at this time. So we prioritized grassroots organizations that have um, budgets under $2 million, organizations that are led by people of color, organizations that might have a large percentage of their funds in government contracts. And we came up with this tiered system for how we would provide additional support. And we just sent them a check. We explained what we did and why we were doing it. They didn't have to apply. Uh, we know that they don't have time for that, right? They're reaching out to us for what they need, but we're trying not to burden them with mm -hmm. anything, even if it is to give them more money, going through that process of like, oh, fill out this survey or fill out this, this application. We're trying to really minimize that. So the fund, we launched on March 13th. Very early on, uh, we were having internal conversations about what was coming. We initially saw that anti-Asian harassment and discrimination was spiking in early March in New York, and we were really concerned about that. So we reached out to some of our community partners who work with um, Chinese immigrant community, work with just the Asian community in general in Brooklyn, to ask them what they were seeing and how they were responding and what we could do as a foundation to support them. So they helped to shape that focus area of the fund very early on. We also realized that low-wage workers were going to be impacted in a very serious way because we, you know, we saw what was happening in France and in Spain with folks being locked down and understanding that even if there was a structural response from government, there are going to be gaps in workers who are not going to be able to benefit from that. Yep. So yep. we started to reach out to um, some of the coalitions that we have relationships with uh, and ask them, what are you seeing? How are you preparing? What are you hearing from your members? Our board stepped up. Our board members gave individually above their annual commitment to help us kind of seed the fund. They committed to drawing down more from our endowment, which in the world of philanthropy just doesn't happen not happen it really yeah. doesn't happen something i appreciate about our foundation and our board specifically is i feel like they really understood why we're here your endowment yes it is so that you can exist in perpetuity but it's also giving you the financial cushion and safety net to show up almost like you know it's not a rainy day fund but it is my monsoon outside and you have a safety net, you have to to put those dollars and those resources in action. And 
it, we didn't even have to really push for that. It was just something that they understood uh, was our responsibility to do. So early on, we were able to craft the focus areas of the fund. We were able to um, identify some initial financial support to get it going. And we sent out our first grants the next week. We started accepting applications. Um, right now, we're still in the immediate response phase where we're giving $10,000 grants to organizations that have created COVID-19 specific projects or have kind of, they're approaching their work in a different way based on COVID. We send out new grants every week. Last week, we sent out, I think there were 26 new grantees. So every week we're pu pushing out new grants. We also are going to move into a sustained response phase. We're not really sure when because we're trying to stay flexible and see how things are evolving uh, and, and really craft our approach based on that. So the grants have been going out, but we also have been very mindful about capacity building needs. So we've been working with experts in the areas of nonprofit finance to host webinars on, we did one on understanding the payroll protection program. What is it? How do you apply? How do you, if you do get your application accepted, how do you ensure you're using that fund, those funds in a way where it can be forgiven? Next week, are working with another nonprofit management um, and consulting company to host a conversation around making tough decisions for nonprofit leaders. You know, we are in a very difficult time where there are going to have to be discussions about sustainability, about kind of shifts in structure and infrastructure, looking at mergers or partnerships. A lot of nonprofits will not survive this moment. Absolutely. So, uh, and knowing that, how do we help nonprofits prepare for that? And how do we help them make informed decisions? And if they do need to have transitions, how do you do that responsibly? Um, I think this is the time, just in case, to just start having those conversations about what resources exist to help you navigate that, the thinking around that. I remember that uh, it was after 9-11, there was a discussion in the philanthropy community, because I think at that time I was more heavily involved with nonprofits than I am now. The idea that people wanted to send their money someplace where it would speak directly to the disaster that happened on 9-11. And that hurt a lot of nonprofits who had uh, f phenomenal causes, but smaller budgets that really, really relied on foundations like yours yeah. um, and other donors. And it just dried right up. And a yeah. lot of places that had, especially I remember there was one I was working that just had opened up and then closed down in the same month. And uh, I, I think about that as far as what we're talking about. A lot of nonprofits in Brooklyn are not going to survive that. How are you preparing people for that? Is it is it a discussion about transitioning? What's the feel on the ground for the nonprofits you work with? There's a lot of concern. There's a lot of worry. I think first and foremost, they're concerned about their communities, their clients, um, their staff. Many are functioning in the, the present day-to-day, -day, this is what's in front of me, while I know their EDs are thinking about, okay, what's going to happen in two weeks? What's happening with the next payroll? What's happening next month? They're in a really, really tough position because time and time again, nonprofits are the ones that are called on to fill in the gaps that are created by government. And they're not given the resources, they're not given the support, uh, but they're expected to just be there without recognition or without um, investment. And that's that's tough. And they take it on because they understand who they're responsible to. And they feel that accountability to community because they're right there. They're, 
they are in like they are a part of those communities that they're serving. So um, my heart just goes out to a lot of our, our nonprofit leaders. I admire the work that they're doing so much. And a lot of them are also grieving like we are losing people left and right. So yeah. we're working through a crisis. We are experiencing a great deal of trauma. You're not getting the resources you need. You're kind of like feeling like you're out alone in a disaster zone. And there's no clear path forward. Like, when is this going to get better? When is, it, when is this going to end? So I feel like a lot of our nonprofit leaders that I've spoken to are grappling with a lot of those things. Curious about just, you know, how the work gets done. That's been you know, remotely is not traditionally the the nature of nonprofit work. How are folks doing that labor? Now, everyone is not working remote. I mean, mm-hmm. I think for a lot of nonprofits, the positions that can work remotely are, but uh, they are essential workers. Mm-hmm. They are showing up, they are delivering food, they are tending to um, their clients. We have some of our grantees are providing services to older adults in Brooklyn. So mm-hmm. they may be residential services. Those folks are coming to work. We have organizations that are providing services to young people who Mm. are unhoused. They are coming to work. As you raise the issue, you know, a lot of this work can't be done remotely. I think they're trying to strike that balance. How do we keep our staff safe and still show up um, for the communities that need us? Thinking about the work that you do, you know, the work is really hard for small nonprofits to do. I mean, you talk about even like assembling and maintaining a board and being intentional about it and then raising the money and then finding the staff. And I wonder whether, I mean, everything you're talking about is very painful and I don't say this without compassion, but I do wonder sometimes in certain environments, let's say, and again, I'm speaking very hypothetically, but like in an environment where there are, let's say a hundred nonprofits, the hundred nonprofits with enough volunteer board members and enough funding, I mean, the the transitions that you're talking about with the possibility of mergers and that kind of thing, the possibility of resource sharing, is there a potential upside there? Like ultimately, again, in my little hypothetical example, could it be that if 50, if the 100 merged to become 50 nonprofits in an intentional way where they didn't lose what was special about them and the, and the way they serve community? Like, do you see that as potentially a long-term upside or is this it's not that, and this is solely to get through a difficult time, and really those entities need to be separate entities. I think that's a tough question. I think oftentimes nonprofits are created because there is a need, there is a gap, right? Sure. I think strategic mergers and partnerships have their place and should be encouraged when appropriate, but it's just, it's hard to say. I think that all of those situations are very individualized. Brooklyn is vast. And I think if you if you live here and you move about the borough, you can see, yes, it's very big and it can be connected. But a lot of the communities are very insular. Sure. And so having a community based organization that is started in your neighborhood, run by people, you know, and trust and serving you in a way that feels familiar and safe, that is can't be under undervalued or overlooked, I should say, um, how important that is to be able to build that rapport and that trust within a community. You know, something that might look like it makes sense on paper, it just doesn't land that way yeah. in communities. So yeah. s- some partnerships may come out of this and that will be, I think, probably the best decision for for the organizations that choose to do that. But there may be a reason we need 100 
small nonprofits. Do you think the journey of a nonprofit is just made harder because just the lack of social safety net over time? And can you envision a space where if there were better policies that maybe not that you'll ever not need nonprofits, but the, the, you know, the lifeblood of organizations would be a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many challenges that nonprofits face just based on the way they're supported and how they're positioned within the landscape of how people are cared for in our society. Yeah. Um, By and large nonprofits, whether it's public or private dollars, they are not resourced in a way that allows the work to be done properly. One, because there's this normalization of underpaying nonprofit sector workers. Yes. And so you have folks who are delivering these critical services very close to, if not already receiving similar services, either elsewhere or um, in some other public program. So I think that's one challenge. Another is there's a lack of trust, both within the philanthropic sector, public, private giving, and in the nonprofit sector. I think there's a lack of trust for, um, a lack of trust in organizations that are created and led within communities, particularly by people who share identities with the issue area or the people that are served by the organization. So where there is a lot of opportunity for innovation and solution and power sharing, there's also a lack of trust and underinvestment. I think there's a lot of work to be done. And I think there are ways to do that work. So for example, Brooklyn Community Foundation, we do a lot of talking with other foundations, uh, presentations in philanthropic learning spaces, articles, interviews, talking about our approach and really trying to influence the field to show up differently when it comes to partnering with community-based organizations. Uh, But there's a long way to go. I think there's a lot that needs to change with how government contracting is done Mm -hmm. on city, state, federal levels. Um, There's an advocacy, you know, need in that space to make sure that that happens. There is a way to, to support the nonprofit sector and the way it needs to be supported, but it is going to take a lot of pushing because right now I think there is a comfort with giving them not enough and expecting them to make, make miracles with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marcy, um, how are you doing? <sighs> I am doing, I am very, I'm very happy to be physically well and healthy and my loved ones to be healthy and well. It's a very stressful time. I think I've experienced a lot of just being emotionally overwhelmed and grappling with that from week to week, day to day, and figuring out new ways to manage that. Um, Just when I think I've got it down, that thing stops working. I have to figure out something new to do to manage it. But I'm good. I'm good. I'm trying to adopt a cat. (laughs) (laughs) What? Not just, I'm trying to adopt a cat, not just to get through like this working from home time, but I think I would like a cat just overall in life. So I'm, you know, I'm making some big life decisions uh, during times of crisis, which everyone recommends that you do. (laughs) Um, Um, But no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, considering, you know, what we're all living through, I think I am managing well. I mean, it sounds like you are doing some phenomenal work because you are a phenomenal person. I'm like your biggest fan, by the way. (laughs) 
I know Thank we work you. in the same building and I never actually see you. I, you know, but... I wasn't going to call you out on that. I know. Um... I, knew, I knew you were about to. <laughs> I, have to so... I, have to I have to ask the one thing because travel yeah. is part of your life. It is. Travel is not happening now. How how have you been managing that travel bug vibe in your family? <laughs> I'm okay. You know, I work in philanthropy, but much of my work as a social worker has been in the health space and public health. And I um, really understand the seriousness of what is happening uh, in terms of the spread of this pandemic. I'm fine staying home. I am okay. I barely leave my apartment. I don't like even moving around my building. I don't really like literally leave my apartment very often. After the third or four, fourth week, I had to start going outside just because I was like, oh, okay, this is what happens when you don't leave your apartment emotionally and mentally. This is what it looks like. So I need to go outside. Hmm. Um, and I found that riding my bike is a really great way to, and, and it might be feeding that travel bug. It gives me a sense of freedom and movement mm-hmm. uh, without having to be in close contact with people. Uh, I take a very easy straight route to the beach um, and I go to Coney Island sometimes in the morning before work, before working from home, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like before work. And I wear my mask and I don't touch anything but my handlebars and it's it's safe, but it allows me to move and like go to the ocean and some of the things that I, I get through travel, I'm able to get um, just by going on a really nice bike ride. That's the best I, I can that. do for now. And I love that. I'm okay with that. <laughs> love it. So if um, during these um, trying and complicated times, uh, is there anything that you have seen, read, heard, or experienced that is helping you to pass the time that you would recommend that other people see, hear, read, or experience to help them pass the time? So, you know, I'm a big outrageous listener and mm-hmm. I was very excited about my media recommendations. I have several. And I wrote them down. Um, okay. So. Get ready, everyone. <laughs> I love it. Audiobooks. I love audiobooks. And I love the app Overdrive because if you don't know, you can access public libraries through their electronic reserves through the Overdrive app. So I access my audiobooks through there for free. I just finished um, Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, and it was excellent, fantastic book. It is fiction based on a real story about a um, kind of a detention school, uh, like a juvenile detention center. Very disturbing juvenile detention center in the South in the 70s or 60s. And I just started Silver Sparrow by Tahari Jones, who wrote American Marriage. It's set in Atlanta about a girl who whose dad has two families and she's navigating that. I just started it yesterday. So that's really exciting. The other. So, OK, so that's the thing to read or to listen to, to watch. Oh, wow, Insecure you broke it down by category. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Insecure season four started last weekend. We're going to talk about that after we, the episode. I, 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 oh my we need to have a. We need, we need to, to have, have a talk. A, sorry, a, listeners, you're not going to hear that. That conversation. But um, uh, we're going to record yeah. once we say goodbye. I I need to talk. I have feelings, but anyway, I have girl. feelings about Molly that I really. <gasps> To figure out how to manage. I have feelings about Molly. me crazy. Hold on. I've only seen the first episode of the season. So can we just. I won't say anything. I will just say that 
I'm done with Molly. Completely <laughs> done. I'm done. I'm getting there. I, I can get there. You're getting. That's what I'm. Lisa says at the very beginning of the season. Yeah, after <laughs> the first episode, <laughs> I was like, Molly, girl, it's been four fucking years. Okay, done. She's, I'm sorry. Yeah. I stepped on your recommendation. Go ahead. Yes. So, for obvious <laughs> reasons, season four of Insecure, and then the last thing I also watched, and I think at least two of you know this. I love to go to the theater. It is one of my favorite things. The last play I was able to see was, it was actually not that long ago. It was in early March. It was the first night of previews for Claudia Rankine's play, um, Help at the Shed. It was the first and only night. And I'm very glad that I was there to see it because I don't know if that show is going to open again. But it was excellent. That was my last time at the theater and I really missed it. So... Um, after doing some Googling and things, uh, I discovered that PBS Online, their great performances series, they have recordings of different performances that you can stream. So last weekend, I watched um, Much Ado About Nothing from last season of Shakespeare in the Park, which was an all-black cast directed oh, yeah. by Kenny Leon, who did Soldier's Play and American Son. And it was excellent, starring um, Danielle Brooks and some other familiar faces. So. Definitely recommend that. Definitely recommend that. Wow. wow I'm, you. You, have I'm found, gonna, you have found the way. Look at her. I'm going to split these recommendations into their own episode. Because <laughs> we are way over. <laughs> Marcy, thank you. First of all, thank you for all those recommendations. Uh, sure. They are they sound phenomenal. And I will yeah. definitely be checking out some of them. And thank you for being here. Thank you for being back on the podcast. I find... I mean, your work is super interesting. I literally have a billion questions that we won't bore the listeners with, but I have a billion questions to ask you. Uh, very Thank exciting you for having stuff. Me. Sure, you have to come back. Oh yeah, I yeah. shall. I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll have you back for our insecure at the end of the please, season. Let's all please. get on the four of us and talk oh about gosh. insecure. It's no, a date. I, I'm here for it. Okay, fantastic. And on that note, everyone, bye. Bye. bye.